Welcome to the Book Evangelists podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode eight, in which we will be discussing Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, as well as mystery novels in general. Also, a quick note from me, usually when we record this podcast, I am upstairs in my tiny office that used to be a closet and everything is quiet and I can lock my pets out. But today, I'm having internet problems up there for some reason. We don't know why. And my neighbors are having their tree removed right outside that window. So I have moved downstairs to my kitchen table and, uh, This should be quieter with better internet, but it does leave me open to the possible predations of my cats, who are uh, Calpurnia, who's my standard issue usual cat I've had, and my lovely, extremely friendly five-month-old kitten, Florentina, who knows she does not belong on a table, but doesn't necessarily uh, believe in the rule of law yet. So if I suddenly start screaming, no, no, down, 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 it's not you, Lissa, it's my kitten. That is a good note. And I think like (laughs) it's good for us to have this foray into our first podcast guests of Calpurnia (laughs) and Florentina. That's right. It'll help us branch out in the future as well. And we'll probably yell less at future guests. I hope so. I mean, maybe. Maybe. We'll see. It's possible. So. (laughs) How's the rest of your morning going? it's going. I guess I have, I've already done the really horrible task that I was not looking forward to. So I'm impressed. Yeah, I got that out of the way early. I got my you? kids to school, and that was not a really horrible task. No. They were pretty great. And it's still an achievement most days, though, to get children really, to school. It really is. Um, and now that they're at different schools, it's like a two-prong approach of... I don't even know. We have not quite mastered it yet, honestly. But So will child number two arrive at the school before child number one doesn't go there anymore? Mm, one will go to high school before the next one goes to the middle school. Yeah. So we've got this set up for a long time. Yeah. Forever, yeah. really. Kind of, yeah. Okay. But we will survive. Yeah. It'll or we'll be just fine. be late to work a lot and... <laughs> It's also a thing. <laughs> it's the new normal. Gone are the days. I've, I'm old, as you know, and, and I walked myself to pre-K across town. Uh, it was a good, solid mile. Uh, and I walked myself there every day in South Dakota in the snow. And I walked myself to high school across London. So a good 20, 25-minute hike across that city, which is kind of astonishing to me now that my parents and self would think it was okay for, you know, 15-year-old Marianne to walk across a big city. I tried to convince the eight-year-old that we could walk to school together this morning, and he very calmly was like, Mom, no, I think that we should drive. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a process on more than one level. It's not just the world that has changed for walking. Um, that expectation has gone from the kids as well sometimes. Yeah ever forever forever but it i will say that my kids are kind of dazzled by it they can't believe it It, i mean it's kind of amazing it is really 
So what else is up in your uh, reading and writing life? Um, I bought a nook so that I could read more at night without, um, I don't even really know what my goal was because my child immediately took it. But I hope to someday <laughs> read on it. I have not yet. Uh, I put some books on it. How about you? Well, I had a nook a long, long time ago. And it, is your nook one of those that just has, you know, e-ink? Or is it Yes, bold? it's e-ink, but some sort of light that I personally have not experienced yet, but I've watched my child experience it, and it looks cool. There you go. Well, I bought a Kindle and uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And I'm kind of like you. I have my reasons for wanting it, but I don't know that any of them are valid. Um, this has to do with the Kindle being smaller and lighter, so I can hold it better with my broken hands. Uh, and maybe wanting to save battery life on other things and also has to do with the fact that my online identity and addresses are all tangled up with those of my husband and so when I get Kindle books sometimes they're delivered to him instead of to me uh, because he has similar initials to mine and so he just everything is just labeled M you know that's not very descriptive. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know. So this way I can pick M's Kindle instead of M's iPad or iPhone or whatever. But uh, I got just the little $50 Kindle Fire, and I am pleased to report to you, Lisa, that yes. I use Libby to get books a lot from the library. Yeah. And although there is not yet an, a Libby app for the Kindle, which I was bummed about, I went on my iPad and I picked a book that I had checked out and I said, read this on my Kindle and it immediately appeared over on my Kindle. So That sounds fabulous. So I can still use Libby to check everything out and keep all my checking out of library books in one spot, but have them delivered over to the Kindle as I want to read them. So, good news. That is good news. Yes. Um, I read books in like every app possible basically at this point. So when I tried to make a list of recent reads just now to prepare for the podcast, I was like opening <laughs> all the apps on my phone and then looking at Instagram because I took a shelfie for InstaRimo yeah. to see like what books I put in that picture. And I, I just say, it's a mess. I don't have heal a good thyself system. Because I used to use Overdrive and you were all like, you got to get Libby. You got to uh, delete everything else. You got to just commit to Libby all the way cold I mean, turkey true. from everything else and here you are with all these things i'm a mess you're yes yes librarian problems so. it is <laughs> you, so it's september yeah it is amazingly september and september only means one thing nano prep nano prep yep and and all of the fresh new nano swag and stuff, and you are an ML from the Municipal Liaison for NaNoWriMo. You're in fact, my ML, because I will never leave and go to the, the uh, region that I'm supposed to be in. I mean, technically, I am on the website, but everybody knows I hang out with you people instead. Which we like. Which we like. So you already have in your possession right now, as we speak, some of the new 2019 NaNoWriMo paraphernalia i basically have all of it because i just buy it all every year so i have the coffee mug which i drank my coffee out of this morning and it is fabulous 
Um, and I have the t-shirt and I have the poster, which is already on my wall because these are the traditions in my house. You order it the first day it's announced <laughs> and you, <laughs> you use it all as soon as it comes. And that is like, it's like a kid on Christmas, but it happens right after Labor Day every yeah, year. And it's, it's beautiful. NaNoWriMo Eve, we'll call it. So oh, we, oh, well, that is definitely a holiday in my house. I, Other kids think it's about Halloween, but it's not. I buy, every year before NaNoWriMo starts, I pre-order the winner's t-shirt. Because, notoriously, I won't wear it unless I, you know, win and make 50,000 words because I'm ethical. But I'm also cheap. And I don't want to have spent the money on something I can never wear. So this causes me to succeed every year just for the t-shirt. Which is beautiful. I it's think beautiful. locally that's known as the Marion Rakestraw Challenge. It is known as the Marion Rakestraw Challenge. And, and we encourage people, I mean everywhere <laughs> basically, to participate in the Marion Rakestraw Challenge. We do. And this year I have to say it's all so lovely that... I'll probably wait until the winter shirt goes on pre-sale and then I'll buy that and the regular t-shirt and the poster, which I never buy the poster, but it's so amazing. This it really year is. That I just really want it. So it is, I'm guessing that the theme, because they mentioned it in an email, is like typewriter time machine. Um, they have a different name for it, which I think is like, oh, now I can't remember. I think it's your novel anytime. Oh. But, but I like typewriter time machine. Is that what I said in a in a in an email? I'm like, oh, I want that. I mean, that's the unofficial theme. And it's all navy blue and gold and steampunk. It is pretty gorgeous. Yeah. So yeah, we need that. All the things. So, since you're sitting there with all of your new nano swag, presumably you've also been reading stuff while you drink your coffee out of your mug. I mean, I do like to read. Um, I've been doing all comfort reads lately, apparently. I didn't know that that's what I was doing until I looked at my list and I was like, oh, those are all like teen romances and Regency romances and re-listening to audiobooks that I love. That's weird. Um, so like lots of Regency romances. Um, Eloisa James has a new one and I actually skimmed this book called The Bromance Book Club, which I had been Resisting Reading. Uh, it's by Lissa K. Adams, and it's a contemporary romance, sort of, in which a bunch of guys on a baseball team all read a Regency romance and discuss it in order to figure out how to better romance their wives. That's kind of interesting. It was an interesting premise. Um, it was all right. I wanted to see how it was done, and so that's why I skimmed it. Um, well, although it does... And we'll be discussing later, I think, like portrayals of women and the nature of women. But it presupposes that women want to be treated the way women in Regency romance novels are treated instead of just fantasizing about the way women are treated in Regency romance novels. Right. If that makes it was sense. An interesting, it was an interesting presupposing. Hmm. I am excited to see there's new Eloisa James. I... I read them for a long time, and I have, I read way less romance than I did at one point in my life, but I liked Eloisa James' books. Maybe I'll go read that one. She's witty. So, Marion, what have you been reading lately? Well, a lot of mysteries. You may remember that uh, for our last podcast, I literally finished the book 20 or 30 minutes before we started recording, and so I'm making up for that this time by binge reading 
everything according, uh, associated with mysteries to get ready for NaNoWriMo. Uh, and I will talk about lots of those books that I've been reading. And I've been listening to The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. Mm, I love that book. And I'm getting ready to read a book that's been on my TBR forever, which is A Packing for Mars by Mary Roach. Have you ever read that one? I have not. My book club was going to do it, and we ended up swapping out for um, Out Stealing Horses at the very last minute. Uh-huh. And Out Stealing Horses was amazing. And go. I decided that was just a sign from the universe. Um, but I haven't gone back to Packing for Mars. So you'll have to let me know what you think. There you go. So other books that I read in preparation for this podcast. Uh, well, I read Murder on the Lynx by Agatha Christie earlier this year and it was like the second book she ever wrote um, The Mysterious Affair at Styles being the first and a book that we read here Murder on Your End Express is number 10 of the Hercule Poirot books um, so I'm counting that because it's a mystery I also read or listened to rather The Cracked Spine by Paige Shelton which is Scottish Bookshop Mystery number one which is a cozy mystery modern day set I read Whose Body, which is the first Peter Whimsey mystery by Dorothy L. Sayers, which is contemporary with The Egg of the Christies. And I read a very short book called Writing the Cozy Mystery by Nancy J. Cohen, because I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And I have been watching a lot of mystery-related movies and television, including I checked out all the movie versions of The Orient Express, but I only have gotten watched one so far, which was the 1974 movie version with Albert Finney as Hercule Poirot and an all-star cast, which was a very well-received movie at the time. And I think Lauren Bacall won an Oscar for it. And I've been watching a lot of Midsummer Murders on Netflix, which there's only like 20 seasons of, so I have a ways to go. And I have checked out, but not yet read a zillion other craft books and cozy mysteries so that I can continue to figure out how to write murder mysteries um, before NaNoWriMo starts because I'm all about the preparation this year and I'm totally going to be a plotter this time. I mean, those are like words that strike fear in my heart. Everybody knows it, but... (laughs) I think especially the idea of plotting a mystery novel like strikes fear in my heart because... Like, what if you get bored and then you have everything tied up in this one plot? Yeah, that worries me too. But the thought of not plotting a murder mystery also really worries me because I know my own weaknesses. And one of the big ones is bad guys. Like, I never know who the bad guy is. And it seemed to me like I should really know who did it before I start. Because otherwise... I'll just put it on a shelf and walk away because the rewrites will be too horrible to contemplate. That seems true. I mean, and it seems like if you're going to really, really firmly plot something that a mystery with a bad guy is a good one to do it on <laughs> because you you have to build it all around that, I think. I don't know. Is that what the craft books say? Well, you know, they're not being as directive as I wish that they would be. Um Last year, I wrote a romance for NaNoWriMo, which is way outside my wheelhouse and was a total disaster, although I did write 50,000 words. 
but I used a beat sheet for it, uh, specifically Romancing the Beat by Gwen Hayes was the book that gave me the beat sheet, and it worked beautifully in terms of giving me a romance novel that did what romance novels are supposed to do and hitting all the points when I needed to, but I cannot find a beat sheet for mysteries. Uh, Save the Cat writes a novel, just says, you know, use the regular beats, and it gathers all the mysteries under it has different genres and it calls those why done it's and it just says make sure you have a detective a secret and a dark turn as the essential ingredients um one of the books i have not read yet that's just sitting here is writing and selling your mystery novel by Haley efren and it has i've leafed through it and it has lots and lots of charts and like spider webs to fill out and I go now try this things questions to answer and that looks like it would result in a plot so it has lots of guys so I imagine I'll be reading that one shortly but really I'm falling back I think on reading a lot of mysteries to know what mysteries are supposed to look like in a way that if you read a bazillion romance novels you know what a romance right. novel is supposed to look like you can't uh, kill the heroine on the next to last page and have the hero lead a life of remorse and brokenheartedness forever because that's not satisfactory. Generally. Generally. Do you think that they can't map out mysteries as well because then everybody would see the killer in chapter five when he's brought up the first time and then see the clue in chapter seven and then? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I, like I said, I've read a lot of these and I think we'll probably talk about like how Agatha Christie does it versus some other people and whether or not those things are satisfactory in general. Do you read mysteries much? No. Ever? I mean, but I read books sometimes and they sometimes have mystery-ish plots or I don't know, but I don't read traditional mysteries much. Okay. Have you ever at any point in your life gone through a phase of reading murder mysteries a lot? No. Well, I did when I was a teenager, maybe. When I wasn't reading Georgia Hare novels, I was probably reading books exactly like Murder on the Orient Express, and in fact, probably Murder on the Orient Express. I read a lot of Agatha Christie books and all the Dorothy L. Sayers, Peter Wimsey novels, which I have very fond memories of, uh, and many others, and read a lot of cozy murder mysteries through the years periodically I'll go back and, and read them um, so I have maybe a better frame of reference than you do coming in oh definitely so you have not read this book before and had you seen any of the movies associated with this book before no Would so I actually didn't know what was going to happen you did not know what was going to happen right You're like I'm, I'm 41 and it's 2019 <laughs> and I totally didn't know who did it well uh, I will issue a general disclaimer that there's probably going to be a lot of spoilers for this book and indeed many other books in this podcast. So uh, I guess we'll try to warn people in advance. But if you haven't read Murder in the Orient Express or seen any of the movies before. It was just me. I was the last then person. You, you so. should probably go and do it. So were you surprised? I kind of was. And also, I kind of felt cheated, which I'm sure we'll get to. <laughs> but I was, but I was like, as I read it, I, I didn't know who did it, so I was trying to kind of figure out who did it, and I was paying attention because I knew we were going to talk about it, so I could be like, yeah, and I totally figured it out. But I just will tell you, I didn't figure it out. 
Okay. So you did. So it was a surprise to you in the end. So does that make it a success? I mean, I think so because it wasn't boring. It made me want to go back and reread it to see how it was all revealed to the detective and to decide if if I felt cheated or not. I didn't have time to go back and reread it yet, but I think I'll I will or I'll watch a movie version to see if I can see it all coming out or not. Excellent. Because presumably in a mystery novel, that should be fun. Yeah, I guess so. That, that, to me, I guess the what the reader wants, like in a romance, they want a happily ever after, after trials through love or whatever. Right. I would think that what a mystery reader wants is the opportunity to see the puzzle laid out and to try to solve it and then to either glory in how clever they were for figuring it out or to have the thrill of surprise and maybe admiration for the reveal of the answer. And I feel like mystery readers then sometimes like to go back and see how it was clever. Yeah. Versus, I don't know, that, like people who read thrillers. That there was that I overlooked. Right. I don't think people who read thrillers go back to do that in the same way. And I don't go back to reread romance novels. Because for me, that's like about the interest. It's like a sitcom. Like, watch the dialogue emerge and see, see, see that it turns out. Watch these people grow and change. But I don't really almost ever need to reread a romance novel. Yeah. So I think mysteries are clever. Yeah, I think the cleverness is is definitely an an aspect of it. So we should probably yes read the Goodreads summary of this book before we get any further. I will read it. Okay, you read it? Okay. Yes. It's a short one. It really is. That's why I was such a good volunteer. <laughs> what more can a mystery addict desire than a much-loathed murder victim found aboard the luxurious Orient Express with multiple stab wounds, 13 likely suspects, an incomparably brilliant detective, an Hercule Poirot, and the most ingenious crime ever conceived. So does that summary work for you? I mean, I think it would be... No, not really, but <laughs> I don't know. It almost says too much. I guess the basics. You got... We got... You guess it kind of tells you who's going to die because it's the much-loathed murder victim. Right. And there's one really... And that there's 13 likely suspects. Like, I think it says too much. I think it should be like, someone dies on the train. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's all you need. There you go. But I think that description is for people who have read it before. Could be because it does have more than 19,000 ratings on Goodreads. So clearly, everybody but you has read this book before. Right. I feel like that description really says too much for somebody who might want to read it. Well, it's, like, it's no more than jacket copy, maybe. Maybe you want to know generally what it is, except death and trains. Yeah, I but think that's enough. It tells you that it's going to be stabby. <laughs> it's going to be a stabby book. There you go. Right. Maybe. Definitely um, a stabby. Definitely stabby. So you think maybe... So what do you short. think? Um, I think it's pretty good jacket copy. Compared to, like, last time, we had that very long description of The City in the Middle of the Night, which still did not give you any concept of what that book was about. Really about. Um, it gave you, like, plot points, but 
uh, but I didn't know that it was an adequate one. I guess it's it's fine. So yeah. it tells you what you're getting. You're getting Hercule Poirot. You're getting Stabby. You're getting lots of lots and lots and lots of suspects. So many yeah. suspects. Um, but like trapped on a train in a snowstorm, it doesn't say. No, it doesn't say. It says train. Or like where the Orient Express goes, which maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It leaves a lot out. It does. Now, that was kind of interesting, but this concept of, of train travel, which is not that common anymore, but was the fact that it was on a train a uh, an enticing aspect of it to you? Do you like trains? I mean, I do like trains. I've not been on a train where there was a crime before. Um, I have been on a train that spent a long time going from St. Louis to San Antonio, uh, longer than anyone planned. Um, so I've had that kind of interaction with other passengers. Um, but it was not a snowstorm. It was trying to go slow to not spark wildfires oh. in the heat of the summer. Wow. So kind of the opposite, really. I I don't think I've ever ridden on a train in the United States of America other than like metro trains. Oh, my cats are meowing. You can hear them in the background. They're bringing <gasps> me mice. Guest stars. Yes, it's guest, guest stars, stars are arriving with stuffed mice in their mouths and meowing a lot. So you get free meowing. It's, it's awesome. practically like owning a cat. Anyway, other than like metro trains in DC, I don't think I've ever ridden on a train in the United States. But when I lived in Europe, I rode trains a lot. And I have kind of a thing for trains. And at the beginning of this book, which I will say I read an ebook copy of it, I had a paper copy of it from the library, but it smelled like smoke and I just couldn't. Uh, so I read the ebook copy. But when I started reading it, I stopped and went away and watched YouTube videos about riding on the Orient Express. Ooh, what and did you learn? I learned that we need to run away and get tickets on the Orient Express, Lissa. There's um, like murderers. No. That's what I learned. It's, it's, the, the video I watched left London, going to Paris, I guess, or further away. I don't know what. But they got on the Orient Express, and it had the real vintage train cars. It was really luxurious and beautiful food and these you know, fabulous compartments, which was super useful to see in terms of reading a book, like how the little beds fold down and how the sinks work and stuff like that. Uh and it was very glamorous. But when they got to Folkestone, which is on the coast, like everybody got off the train and got on buses and then they loaded the buses onto a train that shot through the channel. And then you would get back on another version of the Orient Express in France. So they don't put the actual Orient Express itself cars through the channel. You have to get off and go on a motor coach through the, through the tunnel. That sounds unromantic. It was unromantic. Right in the middle, I'm like, darn it. Even though when you reach Calais and you get back on the Orient Express, there's the nice conductors standing outside the doors and they're matching uniforms and, you know, looking swank and getting back on board. So, but we still need to go and ride expensive train rides of yesteryear. And that it, does sound appealing. And it was really useful for reading the book in terms of getting a feel for what things look like. Because I will say that Agatha Christie is not much on the adjectives. No, the descriptions were like, some doors were open and some were closed. It was hard to tell. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, oh, I'll just imagine a hallway. <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> it really, I mean, it wasn't very descriptive. No. Um, and maybe that's because everybody kind of had a better idea of what trains looked like right then. It could be. And, and later on, we were discussing, like, whether Agatha Christie cheats. One of the things, I was like, well, there's a clue that's kind of important. And maybe I would know that if I rode trains all the time because it was 1934 or whenever this book came out, which I don't necessarily know now, but I still thought it was cheaty and made me mad. So, was it the clue with the door handle? Yep, yeah, it was the clue with the door handle. I so, felt like we wouldn't have known that because the people themselves didn't seem to know it. Didn't pay attention or forgot it. Right. You know, yeah. But we're never told explicitly about the door handle. Uh, which we might as well spoil it at this point in time, uh, yes. which is that the room that the guy or the whatever compartment the guy is murdered in connects to a di- another room, and people are able to go out that way, in and out that way through that doorway, and we're supposed to believe that the woman who's in that compartment doesn't know, couldn't see the bolt on the door, because her sponge bag was handy, handy there. But because it's an odd-numbered compartment, the bolt is, in a, is above the handle instead of below it. And she had only practiced this in even-numbered compartments where the bolt is below the handle, so her sponge bag would have concealed it. Uh, and we're not given enough of a description of the door to know that. You know, it's not a clue that's put there and then you read over it because it's cleverly written in. It's just a clue you're not given at all. And that part feels like a cheat. It does feel like a cheat. I feel like the way that she, that Agatha Christie gets around those feeling totally like cheats is because the, it's not the detective versus the reader. It's the detective versus the other two people in the story trying to figure out the answer with him. So the detective is smarter than them and they all could have noticed that, but didn't. So instead of us feeling cheated, I still felt cheated. Right. And it reminded We're supposed me, to see that they didn't notice. Yeah, it reminded me of a billion years ago when I was reading these books for the first time. And I'm sure that it was the Agatha Christie book, Death in the Clouds, which has a, a murder on an airplane. Oh. Um, but the dead person is like shot with a poison dart. And at the end in the reveal the detective's like oh yes this poison only comes from you know place x and you secretly worked in a place like that and this is not information that we as readers had been privy to the detective knew it but we didn't and i was like even as a child i was like well heck if i had known suspect you know b had worked at a snake venom farm in botswana (laughs) I would have solved this too. You'd have to be a brick not to understand that this is where the poison came from and that's where that person worked, you know? Uh, So I felt really cheated. And that was probably the last Agatha Christie book I read for a good long time, maybe up until, you know, this year. Because I just looked and said, well, she's going to withhold information. This is what I say to her. Um, And I I think that... Go ahead. I think that's tricky for all genre writers because you're following the pattern and following the pattern and your readers like that you follow the pattern and then mm-hmm. one day your readers are disillusioned with the pattern and you didn't do anything different. Yeah, but another book I, I read this month was Whose Body by Dorothy L. Sayers. It's the first Peter Whimsey book. And they're an interesting contrast to each other because 
the Peter Whimsey books are bigger than these, but they're they're lusher and more descriptive and more immersive, I guess, although still very old fashioned. Uh, and you watch Peter Whimsey do everything, and he has a foil uh, whose name is Parker, who's a policeman. But he and Parker talk everything through, and you get extensive descriptions of everywhere, and you're given every clue. And you might walk right past those clues because she's a good writer um, without noticing them. But I've never read a Dorothy L. book where I felt that she was withholding information from me. It's just that I was didn't notice it as we went by. It's buried in among the rest of everything else. Um, so I still get that feeling of cleverness without feeling like I could be equally smart if only I had all the clues, which I did not. So I'm going to be fussy about this. You can be fussy about it. I'm going to listen to Whose Body and let you know what I think. Okay. And it's, I, I will uh, give later on here in a little bit when we're discussing the problems of books this old, we'll discuss a problem that I have with Whose Body. Oh yeah. You can spoil yeah, it for me yeah. because I feel, well, one, well, this I is our podcast it. and we do that, yeah. but also I feel like I'll enjoy it more. It'll That's be like true. my second it, It's not my favorite Peter Wimsey book, which is Murder Must Advertise, which I have always liked a whole lot. Um, but um, it's a nice introduction to him, and he's an interesting character. So structurally, I do feel like this novel follows more or less what I've seen from Murder Mysteries. Uh, we have the introduction to our detective, Eric Poirot. We meet him, and then we meet the suspects, and we see where the setting is, and then a crime happens. And then there's this long section in the middle of this book where first Eric Poirot looks at the crime scene and gathers clues, and then he interviews every single one of these suspects individually over most of the course of the book. And then he thinks about it, keeps his thoughts some secret from other people. We tie up a couple of plot strands that were red herrings, and then he gathers everybody together in a dining car and reveals the murderer. What, when I read Murder on a Lynx, it also had this, every chapter we go and interview somebody format. What did Is you, this how all murder mysteries are? No. I mean, they kind of are, but not this rigid, like... It's so rigid. I was listening to the audiobook kind of over a couple days and kept backing up, especially in part one. I kept backing up, be like, what happened? What is, you know, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. Right. And then right when it got to part three in the audiobook, I realized I wanted to switch to a print book. So I went and got the ebook. And that's when I realized that it was labeled so clearly part one, the facts, part two, the evidence, <laughs> part three, the uh, Hercule Poirot sits back and thinks. Yeah. And like I turned to my kids and was like, guys, you're not going to believe what my book just said. <laughs> and like showed them basically the table of contents on the ebook yeah. and they were like uh that's they're kind of just telling you what they're doing mom yeah like and, they and were the, and shocked the, chap the chapters are like you know uh mrs hubbard you know inter ercule poirot interviews mrs hubbard ercule poirot interviews the count and countess ercule you know so literally it's like and here's this person's story and this person's story and it, so it's almost like a stenographer's report yeah, or your beat sheet that you want. Yeah, or my beat sheet that I want. Interview the suspect. And generally, I would say most of the mysteries I've been reading or watching follow that 
but not so rigidly. If you watch Midsummer Murders, which you should, because it's a lot of fun, uh, they go around and they interview people and they gather evidence and they go and they mull stuff, but it feels more natural than, than this does. Uh, and even the Peter Whimsey, he, because there's a bigger variety of setting, maybe, I don't know, but it's, he goes and does other stuff where he, you want to talk to your friend, Freddie Arbuthnot, you go to lunch with him and have lunch and talk to him instead of just calling him in and grilling him and then calling in the next person and grilling them. Uh, so, yeah. And I've only read two Agatha Christie's this year, but both of them had this very rigid format of now we shall interview the next suspect. Well, and the only other Agatha Christie I think I've read is the one on the island. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, like, and the then, there were one. then there were none. Yeah. yeah then, then there yeah. were none. Yeah. Um, and I've seen the play of that also in the last couple of years. And that one, again, has like a really rigid setting where it just can't be anybody else, kind of. Yeah. And it. So that's an interesting, I don't know, premise or trick. The locked room story. It is a locked room story. Are you going to write a locked room story? I don't know. Uh, you'll have to give me a lot of advice here, maybe toward the mm-hmm. end on what I should write and what I shouldn't write. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, because I think in addition to plotting your mystery novel, figuring out what kind of mystery novel. Yes, yes. And that is a, a question that I have, whether I should write, it's going to be a cozy mystery novel because I'm not going to write like, a, you know, Alex Grecian Right, really, really bad guy. <laughs> really bad guy. Hunting people <laughs> down throughout. Yes, I can't even read those. I'm too, too, too much of a ninny. Uh, mm-hmm. At least not at night. Um, so it's definitely a cozy, but whether it's like going to be historically set or modern, I don't know. Most cozies that I've seen around tend to be modern set, but I worry about technical knowledge and forensics, and maybe cozies sidestep all modern police work to a certain extent. Or you could set it during the time that you were walking across London, that's which just, you have firsthand knowledge of, and then the there's 80s. no technology. Well, there's some technology. It wasn't the but Stone there's, Age. But it's not like you were texting your parents when no, you made it safely to not, school. not texting my parents. And there wasn't, I mean, London these days has CCTV cameras on every corner, but it didn't then. But I was thinking of actually setting it in the 1920s or 30s like this novel is, because there are some modern sets of modern written novels that take place then then because it's the golden age of mystery um so yeah so revisiting it would be yeah and i think i will i will spoil this i think that my heroine who's because i've decided to have a woman detective is an amateur archaeologist i mean she would be a professional archaeologist if it's modern set but in right but i have a thing for archaeology like, and the great thing about nano is you can just indulge all your things I can, and it's part and I, of your research. Yes, one of one of my uh, one of my degrees is actually in anthropology. So uh, I really love archaeology and, and anthropology and stuff like that. So I thought well she could be um, if I said it in the 1920s an amateur and if I said it now a professional archaeologist which gives you the opportunity to move it around and find things and there's lots of pickaxes handy. So, I as well. just read an Amelia Peabody. Yes. Is that the right name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these Egyptian set ones. Yeah. 
It's been mm-hmm. a long time since I've read them, but it's on my list of like, see how the Amelia Peabody novels deal with archaeology and murder. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah. And I just read here, I, I who never read mystery novels, read a whole bunch of mystery novels last year, apparently. <laughs> um, I read the first book in the, now I'm not going to remember the name, um, the Charles Todd series, A Test of Wills. Yeah. I read I that last that. fall also. There you go. See? So it's all lies when you said you don't it have experience with this. Oh. I don't pick them up voluntarily. I read them for reasons. <laughs> well, you do, totally belong- a thing. you do have a professional um, duty to read a murder mystery on occasion. Exactly. Yes. Versus like how I just now, while we're recording, downloaded the audio book of Whose Body uh-huh. and then looked at the well looked at the clock but really looked at the date and was like oh yeah because about exactly 20 years ago I promised my first roommate in graduate school that I would read those someday so this is good I'm totally following up finally yeah on that. yeah see right because he read them every year and thought that they were great and thought I would like them and I mean it only took me exactly 20 years to download the first one I'm on my way well Peter Whimsey um is whose body is set in the very early 1920s but he aged in real time as she wrote these novels up into the 1950s I think interesting uh, which is very unusual and actually the, the how to write cozy mysteries book I said said you know that's very weird and unusual to age your character in real time that you have to remember your timing and set one book a couple of months after the next one and have you know people dropping dead on a constant basis uh, because reasons Right, uh, but he does age in real time. But so he's a very young man in the first book, and he has come back from World War One, kind of damaged. He has PTSD, which it wasn't what they called it then, but it's what they call it now. And if he is under a lot of stress or has to make moral choices about, you know, outing murderers, which is going to result in their hanging and so forth, he'll have a break, a psychological break. Uh, and have to be hauled away to the country and taken care of. And so he's, to me, a more interesting character, and he has these wild mannerisms of the kind of useless, not buffoon, upper-class clown, but they're really, he's something that he's putting on as a coping mechanism to deal with life. Uh, So I think he's interesting, and his, his personal man, his valet, Bunter, is lovely. Uh, so he's, he's interesting to me, and I think that it's a fairer novel, and I won't tell you what happens in it except for one thing. Okay. So, you uh, can spoil it. No, it's, I mean, it's okay. I don't need to spoil it. But I will tell you one thing about it that, okay. that bothered me now that didn't bother me when I was 15 so much. Maybe I was interested in other aspects of it then. Um, so which brings us to our further discussion of, do you think, because she said cheat, for not telling you about the bolt on the door or anything else? I mean, kind of. Or for like the whole thing as a whole setup from the very first moment of the whole thing is the part where I think she's a cheat. You mean I'm less concerned about the bolt. In terms of like... <laughs> Every character is a liar in the entire book and it's all play acting. Yeah. That felt kind of like cheating. Everybody more than lied the to you bolt. the whole time. Yeah. The bolt felt like the trap by which she caught her characters. Yeah, although something that, and it often bugs me in murder mysteries, is 
that things conveniently happen that allow the detective to do certain things. And both Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers in the books that I read mentioned, oh, that sounds like a cheap detective novel where they would do this sort of thing. Uh, and Hercule Poirot or Agatha Christie as Hercule Poirot ridicule cheap detective novels. But the murderers in this, and we'll just say everybody did it, okay? Right. Spoil the Everybody did it. They do something so boneheaded that I couldn't believe it, which is that they have sent a letter to Ratchet, who they're going to kill, telling him, this is because you murdered Daisy Armstrong, the baby, and we're going to get you. And then instead of removing that letter with themselves from the compartment, they burn it in the compartment and leave the bits. So Hercule Poirot is able, through his genius, to reconstruct parts of it, which lets him know Ratchet's secret identity as the murderer of this child several years ago, which then allows him to connect everybody to the Armstrong case and gives him his motive, which I thought was pretty tenuous anyway, that he would, oh my goodness, it's a secret identity. His name's not really Ratchet. But also that all 12 of these people or 13 people would be dumb enough to leave the clue that ties them to this where otherwise there wouldn't be any I mean they have secret identities for Pete's sake yeah and then they're they, really really undercover yeah and then they leave you the clue that lets you make the connection that everybody's connected to the Armstrong case which I thought was just too convenient for Eric Cuporo so I think there's that line that mystery writers have to walk which is either there's something the detective can figure out mm-hmm. or like some people got away with a weird crime and nobody knows what happened and nobody suspects any of these people and we unjam the train and go well, on our way. And I, He needs to discover this connection, but I thought she made it too easy for him because he discovers this immediately, like immediately. He walks in and says, oh, look, a burnt letter. Here I can through, do this trick. Yeah, between... Things I have on board, I can make a machine that will do this trick that will give me the clue that I need. And then I immediately know who this person is. And I. So I thought that was good plotting because it was like early forensic science. Yeah. This guy's a real detective. He knows these tricks. That he Here's can use our his first clue. To. And that's like the last time he really investigates clues. And after that, he just talks with people. Yeah, talks with people. So, I so that, that was his big moment to prove himself. Maybe. Yeah, everybody was impressed. Know. The, you know, the doctor who was with him and stuff were right. impressed by his amazing abilities. Um, so I guess I would have thought that she was gifting herself that so that then she could move along to the interviewing people section. So. Which is at least what he likes, if it's not what Agatha Christie likes. Well, I'm sure it is what she likes. So, so, so what kind I, of mystery... She's clever. She's, I mean, you know, I don't want to rag on her. She's, it's an amazingly clever, and at the time it was written, I don't think there had ever been a mystery where everybody did it before. And I think that's why it was such a sensation. In the same way that she wrote The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, where nobody did it, it was a suicide made to look like a murder. Ooh. Because he's a rat fink and wanted to incriminate people, which was a sensation when she wrote it. Uh, so maybe because she's new and trying these things for the first time, her cleverness is is a distinguishing characteristic of her, and she is very clever in terms of how she sets up these puzzles. So, yeah. 
So what I have read a whole bunch of times is um, Connie Willis's To Say Nothing of the Dog. Which is a great book. Which is a great book. And I don't want to spoil it because I think everyone should go read it. And if you were listening to an Agatha Christie podcast, you might not have heard of the science fiction writer Connie Willis. And mm-hmm. um, But in that book, the characters, well, one of the characters in particular, reads Agatha Christie a lot. Yeah. And talks about Agatha Christie plots a lot. Um, and so most of what I knew about Agatha Christie and Agatha Christie mystery novel plots and how those stories work is from characters talking about it in To Say Nothing of the Dog. I can see that. And and if you're sitting there and you haven't read this and you're asking yourself why as a science fiction writer talking about Agatha Christie, it's because they're time travel books, uh, which is not a spoiler. So there's, you've got to know that to begin with, that the people in that version of Oxford time travel to the past from time to time and therefore one of the main characters in that book has read Jerome K. Jerome's Three Men in a Boat which I think if you're going to read To Say Nothing of the Dog you should read Three Men in a Boat first so you can understand how funny um, To Say Nothing of the Dog is they, they're really both hilarious yes but one references the other and kind of follows along in its footsteps a lot of times. So this brings us to, I think, old book problems. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So old books can be problematic to go back and reference or copy or reread or recommend. Yeah, so if these books are the kind of the, and in many ways the, the genesis of the murder genre in its modern format, they're problematic. And you know, you have, I suppose, like Sherlock Holmes and stuff before this, but these are following hard on heels. It's the, like I said, the golden age of the murder mystery are these old British murder mysteries. But if you're reading them from a modern standpoint, I do think they're problematic in some ways or things stand out in them that would not have stood out to the original reader. Um, I took a screenshot of a quote that said, um, I'd like to see an angry Englishman. They are very amusing. The more emotional they feel, the less command they have of the language. Mm -hmm. And I thought I took a screenshot of one about Italians. Yes, the Italian in here is cardboard Italian. I mean, he has the whole, and it's written in a book dialectically, the whole over-the-top Italian accent. I was glad that I mean, it was horrible, but I was glad they kept reminding me that Italians like to stab people with knives because <laughs> I must have not have known so that. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm from a hometown that has something called the Italian Fest, and stabbing with knives has never been part of that culture Ugh. that they celebrated. And there's not a, like a stabbing booth. You go pay no. a quarter and they stab you. And then, like, it had never, I'd never heard that Italians might stab people with knives. So, so I was glad that they if that was going to be part of how the detectives were making their decisions, um, that they explained the stereotypes to me. Mm-hmm. There you go. And it's every... So in in this book we have, like the American is a noisy gum chewer. Um, and the American private eye is like, you know, stereotypically hard-boiled detective guy. Um and the, the French are all um, 
consumed by their interest in food, for example. They all talk about food all the time. The Italian is hot-tempered and has this outrageous accent. Uh, the Hungarians are coldly reserved. The Russian is so much pre-revolution Russia, it's amazing. Uh, the, but everybody in this book is described either by racial characteristics, if I can say that, or, or religious yeah. ones, or class ones. Um, so what got me that makes me want to go back and reread the whole book is, at the very end, some of them reveal that they've been acting a version of themselves or acting a completely different character than who they really are. And all of them are intentionally being on that train in a certain way right. to portray themselves and, in a certain way. And then it made me rethink all of those references and descriptions. Yes, and I will say to give her her due and credit, for example, one of the things that reveals that someone is being deceptive is the Mary Debenham character, a, a young English woman who says she's never been to America, but she refers to long distance making a long-distance call instead of a trunk call. And this tells Poirot that she has been to America. And I felt that that was a fairly planted clue. He did a good job with that one. Um, so in that way, it's kind of important to discuss maybe language differences between the way someone who has been to America would speak and someone who has not. And what, not just those, but what are the most obvious ones that readers might pick up on also? Right. There's all those layers of not just like Perot has, uh, has to get it, but your reader has to get it mm-hmm. and not have it explained to them too much. Right. And, and like I said, because Agatha Christie is not, this book is certainly not overwritten. Let's put it that way. She's very terse in her descriptions. Yes. Maybe it's important to have cut out characters, cardboard characters, like the, the, the noisy gum-chewing American so that you can distinguish that character from another one because otherwise it would all just be, there's a lot of them, and it would all just be the same person over and over and over again. They all sound the same except for their outrageous accents. Um, so maybe that helps you keep one clear from another? Yeah, and I think these are all things, especially if you're going to have that many suspects, that you'll face when you go to write your mystery novel. I will. Like, how will you keep them straight? How will your reader keep them straight? How will you drop the clues that well, are the red like herrings or not? Well, read has a lot of characters in it. Not as many as this one does. Uh, and maybe not enough of potential murderers. But they're all very clearly differentiated. But it, it also suffers, I'm going to tell you this, from this same problem. In that the basic plot line, which I'll tell you, is that Someone that Peter Whimsey is tangentially associated with, okay, discovers, gets up in the morning and walks into his bathroom, and there is in his bathtub a murdered person who is naked except for a pair of pince-nez, as we say. And at the same time, across town, Parker, the detective, gets called in to work on a case of a financier who's gone missing. And it's, are these two cases related to each other, or are they not? But the body in the bathtub is described as having a Jewish look about it. 
and the financier who's disappeared. It's constantly harped on the fact that he's Jewish and that he looks Jewish or does Jewish things. And this is really disruptive to me as a reader that the stereotyping of that religious group as looking, acting, sounding, thinking a specific way was very disruptive. But in the same way that it was important to have Mary Debenham make a language error, or maybe to have people in this book act a certain way to get them clear, in whose body it's kind of important that Levy, who's the financier, be Jewish because, A, you get some social commentary. The fact that he, his wife, whom he adores and who he's lovely to, uh, is English upper crust and that it was kind of scandalous when she married a Jewish guy and that Peter Wimsey recognizes that it was scandalous and that you get social commentary on that um, as well. So, but it, but it really stood out to me as a problematic thing that you would never do this in a billionaire's because no, ever. Um, so I think that makes it even more complicated to write a novel in like NaNoWriMo 2019 when we have like a whole movement towards own voices right. and authentic representation and, and diverse characters mm -hmm. because Murder on the Orient Express is not exactly diverse characters. No, and interestingly, the one of the movie versions, the Kenneth Branagh directed one where he plays Eric I Morrow. looked at the pictures of that because they were at the back of my ebook. Right, they're at the back of my ebook too. And the, one of the characters, two of the characters at least, have been added on or changed to reflect modern diversity. The doctor is a person of color, and there is, I can't remember which of the Latina actresses it is, who has been like a completely different character who's been inserted and exchanged for one in the book. Um, so there was an attempt made in that movie, I think, to make the cast more diverse, but it's a super white book. They're all super um, yeah. white books. So the question that I have is if I want to set my mystery in England in the 1920s or 1930s and respect that the world isn't just full of white people, although maybe in 1920s England was like a lot of white people, how can I um, give the correct feel of the period while not bringing all the baggage of the period along with me and being respectful of a very reasonable move toward diversity in books. I have no idea. Yeah. Because I was like, and I have not watched the Kenneth Branagh movie, but I was like, yeah, you can put a black doctor on his train, but I don't think that these people would treat him with the same respect that they would treat a white doctor on that train in 1934. Um, I think it would be really interesting to, to see that movie, to see, because the people who, and I'm in no way an expert on any of these topics, but in the reading I've done, especially recently, they talk about how race perceptions of different people of color in England is really different than Americans. It is. And, and people don't, 
react the same way or think the same way mm. because everything has been conditioned differently in societal ways. So I think when you've got the Americans pretending to not be or people pretending to be American, if you put a doctor who from the pictures appears to be African-American mm-hmm. on the train or appears to have d- darker skin on the train, wh- how are you going to play all of that out? Oh, yeah. But it's I have no idea. Would, you know, they have, a, a, I would say, a different history than we have, but they're not. And, they, and I think that they're maybe they do not have the same racial problems we have, but I think they have different ones. And certainly their class structure is maybe even more ingrained than ours is. And yeah, I would, I don't think it's reasonable to say, Oh, you can be a, an, a black doctor in 1920s England and no one's going to care because they would care. Um, so I, yeah, and I found the class things in this book almost unbelievable in the way that I had trouble keeping track of who was in which class because there were servants. Yeah. But all the servants seemed to be friends with everyone else. Well, and get, some well, of and that thing you know, was... But like the servant classes, the working classes, are the, the train car, which thank goodness there's a map of in the ebook. Um, I did not find the map. I did, and and because you're reading the book and it's in the pages, like early it on, must so not before have, you oh, start. I didn't read it. the beginning, right? Yeah. So when they first arrive on a train, like the Erkubaro sits down with a map of that train car, which I took a screenshot of. <laughs> I can refer that back to like smart. who's in which room because it's super complex and unbelievable. Otherwise, but on a single you know car of the Orient Express, there's like first class cabins and then there's second class cabins. So all of the working types and servants are down in second class, which have two people a room as opposed to the first class ones, which have one person. a room. But it's all in the same train car, right? So you'd have to leave the train car. It's a very long train car. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm distracted because my cat Calpurnia has arrived back and she's walking on the dining room table which she knows she's not allowed to do, and she thinks she can get away with it because I'm distracted. But I'm not. I see you, cat. So anyway, <laughs> back over These here. sound like good details for your mystery <laughs> novel. They do. She knows better, and she's doing it anyway I'm because she's... I'm really intrigued by how you're going to pull off a mystery novel because there's so much to think about. There is. Like so all those ways. Things. This is why I need to become a plotter right here. And so I can hmm. make it right. We'll see how I do. It'll be fascinating to find out whether I crash and burn or not. You know what might help is this thing that I did once by accident that I think about all the time now as a writer. Um, this one time when I had to misplay in D&D and I had to let somebody else play my character, mm-hmm. I had to write down what my character thought of everything. Like, here's what she currently thinks about this person. And if this happened, this is what she would do in this moment. And here's what she's suspicious of right now. And here's what she's worried about right now. And if this opportunity arose, she would take it. Yeah. Hey, but I'd- for that point in time. And I feel like as a mystery writer, you have to know that about every character for every moment of the book. I, and every scene. I mean, as a writer, you should know that about your character. Because there's nothing more annoying in a book than when... A character reacts to something in a way that you as the reader know they would never do. Right. But the the writer has made them do it because the writer needs them to do that. 
to fill out the plot in a specific way. You know, they, yeah. the woman does a stupid thing so that other things can happen uh, when she wouldn't normally do a stupid thing. Yeah, as a reader, I'm really impatient with those moments in books. I am too. So, yeah, I, I clearly need to fill out all the diagrams and all the charts and ask all the questions and do all that backstory about your character stuff that I never do because I usually just jump in and go. Uh, and then do it while you're writing, like check in to yeah. see, is this still what they really think here? Yeah. Or if not, why not? Mm-hmm. What has changed that makes them think a different way? And are you going to change your outline or are you going to go back and force your character and write some big as ifs? Yeah. I'm I'm excited that you're writing a mystery novel. Yeah. What are you writing? I don't know. It's only September. This is the (laughs) time during nanoprep when I buy a t-shirt and put the poster on the wall. (laughs) 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 Set up a lot of Facebook events so that I have scheduled time to write in November. That's a really important part of my process. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't gotten any farther on anything else. Well, what I love here is that we're, you know, that your process mostly involves not thinking about it and not uh, doing any prep work at all as far as actual writing. And it works for oh, you. No. I mean, it works for you. It works for me. Yeah. And usually, I will, usually that's how I am, too. I'm like thinking and kind of, you know, flopping around. And that's kind of where I am, really. You know, you are. You're just thinking a lot about mystery novels. I am. And, I, and I'm thinking I need a, I need to kill someone in a spectacular way because I think killing people spectacularly is important to this Oh, it definitely is. You can't just kill them any old way. So, because that would be, you know, unless it's whether or not has this person really been murdered or not, which is a valid plot point in lots of murder mysteries. Or they've, they've, they're dead, but they're not dead in the way you thought they were dead. Right. There's so many options. You thought they'd been you know, shot, but it turns out they'd been poisoned beforehand. And right. that the body was already dead when shot. Yes. There's so many options. Yes. <sighs> so I have a lot of work to do. That's what we're saying. It's a lot of decision making. Yeah. But happily, a lot of my work involves like lounging around reading books. So that's good. That's solid. That's a solid plan. It's a solid plan. So if I don't want to write a teen Regency romance, I should lounge around and read different books. That's what I'm hearing. I don't see why you couldn't write a teen Regency romance. Oh, that would require a lot of research. Meh. Although, I will say, romance readers of historical romance, like if you get the details wrong, you will hear about it from these people. If people I know, I don't are wearing a morning it. dress to a ball, you are going to hear about it because you're wrong. Yeah, I will keep enjoying Eloisa James's research, and I'll write something else. But if you just read enough Eloisa James novels, maybe you'll know everything via osmosis. Maybe. I know a lot about Regency England, (laughs) but only about the parts that you see in romance novels, like gaming halls. I know a lot about gaming halls. Yes, that's right. And and gin. and, And Yeah. Yeah. Carriages. Yeah, all the carriages. All of this is not really serving me that well in 2019. But if I ever get a bump on my head and wake up in another time period, you're set. You're set. See, you could write a novel about someone who's read so many Regency romances and gets bumped on the head and wakes up in Regency England 
and whether or not all the stuff they thought they knew about Regency England is really going to work out for them or whether they're going to be a great big weirdo when they go to Almax. I have read that book and it is called, actually I've read that book a couple times, but um, Confessions of a Jane Austen Addict. There you go. I think that's what happens in that book. I'll try to find you another idea then. It really... Um, Doomsday Book by Connie Willis is kind of like this in that the main character thinks she knows how to go about living in medieval England and she's wrong in terms of dress and manners and language and everything else. Um, I love that book. I know you do. I mean, I named my firstborn (laughs) child after that book. It's usually a sign that someone really likes a book when they start naming children after it. I just named cats after books and it's okay. That seems like so much easier actually. (laughs) Yeah, and they, you know, if my cats cannot have grandiose names, then why bother? So It's so true. Yeah. Um, my kids were admiring Florentina's picture and begging for a cat last night, actually. Well, they are welcome to come here and cuddle her because she is uh, a cat who needs to be held a lot. She wants to be held. I actually have been looking at sweatshirts online that have pockets for your cat in the front so you can put your cat so I can have two hands so I can get stuff done because... She needs to be held a lot. It seems reasonable. Yeah. yeah. The first nano after I had a baby, I can remember putting a pillow on my lap in front of the computer so that the baby could lay in my lap while I typed over the top of her. Yeah. That seems it's legit. It was legit. Yeah. As long as you time your babies right for nano or your kittens, well, it can work. That's very important. You've got to think ahead about this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Very good. So, Speaking of thinking ahead, yeah. I don't know what we're reading for next time. I don't know either. What's it going to be? Hmm. I don't know. Perhaps we will go about our um, laying about and reading and indulge our whims and see what happens. I don't know. That seems pretty Is dangerous. That too stressful? Very dangerous. What if, what if we don't read the same things? Then we will have an episode where we convince each other. To read other things. Maybe, or, yeah, it's possible, so. I don't know. What are your ideas? Oh, gosh. Is there anything coming out this month that you're super excited about? Um, I mean, I got the, um, I got two books on the, their book release date this week, but it was um, the new I Survived the Great Molasses Spill or something, and then also um, the graphic novel, Babysitter's Club, number seven, Boy Crazy Stacy, which I accidentally bought two copies of. I don't want to read either one of those, though. <laughs> I, was say, I, I mean, I happily bought them. I, but. I never read the Babysitter's Club as a teenager, um, <sighs> but I might suffer terribly if I read them now. I don't know. I think starting with graphic novel num- adaptation number seven, Boy <laughs> Crazy Stacy, is not where we want to start. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. I'm open to suggestions. I guess maybe we could make it a surprise. We'll have some uh, behind the scenes, um, (coughs) wrangling and bribery. Definitely. uh, Vicious infighting or something. Although I don't know that that would really happen. Neither one of us is really a vicious infighter. We're really not. Um, I think in the next little bit here, I'm going to read... Heartland by Sarah Smarsh, and I'm going to read Nomadland, and I can't remember the author's name, but it's also nonfiction. 
Um, and then I guess for the <coughs> other well, book club I'm in, if I'm going to read Dune. But uh, if, yeah. if, um, if you read your nonfiction book and I read Packing for Mars, we could discuss <gasps> we nonfiction. We could discuss nonfiction. Yeah. We could. And that would keep me from having to do nanoprep because <laughs> I'm not going to write nonfiction. No. Because it's not a novel. It's not a novel. That's right. And you're not a rebel. No, I'm not very rebellious. Um, yeah, maybe we'll read some nonfiction. Okay. All right. You want to take us out, Lisa? Yes. Thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Notes for this and previous episodes are available on the Book Evangelist website. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelist at gmail.com.